What is happening, everyone? Welcome again to The Window, Canada Sports Betting Podcast. Ahead on today's episode of The Window, the land of the rising sun celebrates as the sun sets on the 85th edition of the Masters. While we didn't catch the Hideki Matsuyama outright, plenty of other good bets and better calls from the preview last week. I'll break down the weekend that was at Augusta from a betting standpoint. Then it's a look back at the last few days for our proprietary NHL model in Let's Do That Hockey, along with a couple plays worth a look on Monday night. It's time to head to the window. Let's go. Welcome to the window. I'm your host, Matt Russell, and we'll start off. It's the Monday after the Masters, so got a lot to talk about from the tournament. Obviously, no podcast on Friday. Um, part of me wanted to just fire up the microphone to talk about what happened on Thursday because I think there was a lot of stuff that was kind of interesting from a betting standpoint from that first day. But I think we got to start with the champ, uh, Hideki Matsuyama. And, you know, I didn't have Matsuyama. I'm not sure many people did. Uh, you know, you see the reports from different sports books talking about like 1% of the handle was on Matsuyama. You know, not a necessarily popular pick before the tournament started. And so you have to sort of ask yourself when it comes to golf betting, like where did that come from? Right? What were, what were the signs that he was going to put it all together? And we talked about it uh, on Thursday's show. And just sort of the idea as the Masters were starting that, like, we can do all of the preparation and all of the strokes gained work and looking at this guy or eliminating that guy. And then it really just comes down to one guy, you know, getting lucky, getting hot, you know, some combination of the two. And you sit there, you watch the tournament and you're seeing these individual shots and whether it's, you know, there was a lot of commotion on what, the 15th on Friday where guys would be at the back of the green and they'd chip or they'd putt down the hill. And, you know, you saw Spieth and he hits the hole, hits the flag, goes in, and he makes eagle. And then you saw the comparison between he and Shane Lowry. Shane Lowry's shot just misses the hole and goes all the way off the green down into the water. And he ends up with, you know, bogey or double bogey, something along those lines. And so Michael Greller, the caddy for Jordan Spieth after, you know, I think he said to Dottie Pepper, he's like, yeah, we probably saved ourselves three shots by that just getting lucky and hitting the flagstick. And so, you know, Jordan Spieth didn't end up winning, but who knows what those three shots could have meant. And, you know, one of the better shots of the entire weekend was Hideki Matsuyama on 15 on Saturday, and he just clears, you know, essentially the ridge that may have, you know, hit and then rolled back down into the water. And we all sort of kind of forget it because he ends up, you know, making an eagle. And, you know, as part of his sort of incredible stretch there. And so, you know, there's a ton of element of luck, right? Especially on a course like Augusta National, where you have sort of shaved um, hillsides where balls can, you know, aren't just going to roll off the green into the rough. They're going to roll off the green all the way into the water. It is just sort of that course when you have, you know, hilly fairways, um, you know, different open tree areas right how many times do you see balls go into the tree and eject themselves right back out into the fairway happened a lot in the final round and you sort of sit there going like man i wish my ball did that as often as it seems like the professionals um, 
get that kind of a break. And some guys end up deep, deep into the trees, and other guys end up hitting a ball you know, just in the rough or uh, or even back into the fairway. And so there's a lot of luck going into it. And so as much as we try to figure out, you know, strokes gained and, you know, you look at a Jordan Spieth who's like, okay, well, his, you know, tee game is this and his putting game is this. And then like, a day or a weekend like this past weekend comes up where things are kind of the opposite, where he's striking the ball incredibly well and his putting isn't where it usually is and so how are we supposed to predict any of this to actually happen and so you know when it comes to a decade he's 29 years old and he feels like he's been around a lot longer than that there's a ton of guys who feel younger than him who are in their 30s at this point um and so you look and you go okay well you know we had we were ruling guys out because they didn't make the cut at the players or they haven't done this or they haven't done that and Hideki's a guy who you know, it wasn't on him this week and never really thought to be on him because I have been on him before in, you know, uh, you know, 20, you know, 16, 17, 18, like I would pretty much automatically have a Hideki ticket. And, you know, a guy fails that many times and, you know, different degrees of failing, right? Sometimes you're in contention, sometimes you're not. But you sort of get tired of going back to the well with the same guy over and over and over again where it just doesn't pay off. Like, I have a handful of guys that are in that category. Tommy Fleetwood is in that category for me where I've had to retire from betting on Tommy Fleetwood. And whether Tommy Fleetwood's the, you know, British Hideki Matsuyama or Hideki Matsuyama's the Japanese Tommy Fleetwood, who's to say? Uh, But those are both guys that I've sort of had to back off when it comes to, you know, betting on them for outrights. Now, in the case of Matsuyama, considerably more consistent. If you go up and down his results, he's always, you know, around the top 20. You know, more recently, not in contention all that much, though you wonder he was in the lead after the players' first round last year when all of this COVID stuff went down. Does, you know, in this alternative universe without COVID, does he end up carrying on and winning that tournament outright? And then we have sort of maybe a different viewpoint of Hideki right so you have to factor in you know beyond the fact that this you know the 2020 Masters happened in November and obviously way different conditions and all of a sudden like Sanjay M is in the mix and Dustin Johnson's running away with it and would those two things have been the case back in April um, you know probably not and you see sort of the different conditions, how, how that affected certainly Sun JM, which was a great point made on our Masters preview with Colin Wilson, who we'll talk a little bit more about in a second here. But, you know, DJ misses the cut and you can, you know, make different excuses for why that is. We never really liked DJ coming into this tournament. He didn't, you know, we talked about it in the preview. Just not a guy who was playing the same way that he was coming into the Masters, right? Masters, he was dominating throughout that fall schedule. Not remotely surprising that he'd come in and absolutely take names out there in November. This time around, he's withdrawn from two different events here in the early part of the season and hasn't played particularly well in any of the events that he played in. And so we sort of steered clear. Now he ends up missing the cut entirely, which was pretty wild. Didn't see that coming. You'd think just on 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 pure skill, that in a tournament that you know we talked about isn't that difficult to make the cut jose maria lathable made the cut for god's sakes so you know we go and we go okay like he's going to at least make the cut and all these other guys are going to be around but who's going to be upper echelon who's going to take it to the next level and so when you look at a decade and you're like where did that come from 
You know, even just last week in the Valero Texas Open, where we get all excited because Jordan Spieth wins and he's back and all of that sort of thing, Hideki was tied for 30th with the likes of Martin Laird, KJ Choi, and Rory Sabatini. And, and missed the cut in the players, you know, a couple of weeks before that. He was in the match play. We saw a glimmer from him. Talked about Patrick Cantlay. What a terrible call that was, by the way. Um, don't know what's going on with him mentally. There's some rumors, you know, in his personal life, things haven't been great. Uh, but, it, you know, he was lighting it up in the first two matches at the match play a couple of weeks ago. And he loses to Hideki in the third matchup and Hideki doesn't even make it to the next round but beats Cantlay at his sort of peak if you will when he's playing really well and so is that like a signal that we should have been on him well no because again he goes and he finishes t30 with Choi Sabatini and Laird at the Valero Texas Open so there was no real reason to be like okay we need to be on Hideki Matsuyama here at this point and even through the first two rounds you know, people weren't clamoring to be betting on Matsuyama there either, right? It was, it felt like a very Matsuyama-type Masters, where he was going to be, you know, kind of two under through every round. He'd finish at minus six, minus eight, something along those lines. He'd finish 14th, he'd finish eighth, and we'd never really see him on the broadcast. Maybe he'd make an eagle at some point on Sunday, and they'd sort of have to show him doing that, but he'd always kind of be four or five shots out of the pace. And then... The thing that happens that you need to happen for winning one of these majors. Because the cool thing about these majors and why we get so fired up about them is like, it's like the Olympics, only instead of every four years, there's four every one year. Because you get to see these guys who all are locked in. They're not working on their game. They're not working on different shots. They're not, you know, trying to get fired up for something else the way they do in the regular tour. They are locked in, and this is what they're here for. And so all these guys are at their absolute peak, or, or trying to be at their absolute peak. And he ends up you know, four under through the first couple of you know, rounds, and he's five under through nine uh, into the third round. And so you go, okay, that's, about, that's literally an average of one under through every nine holes. And that's kind of, again, the most Hideki you can be, right? Like, really consistent. Maybe there's an eagle in there, but there's probably going to be a bogey right after it, or vice versa. And then the rain comes, and the storms come. And it's the difference between, you know, stopping play because of the storm, and then just riding right through it. And if there's electricity in the area, they're going to stop it. I don't know that there was really all that much electricity, so maybe he catches a break as well, because they're a little more anxious to get guys off the cor- off the course. And so, you know, much has been made about him going to his car and just being on his phone and not really doing anything in between. But when you come back out and the conditions are softer and there's no wind, right? We've all been there where a storm has been brewing for a few hours and then it comes through and then it's quiet uh, as all can be when, you know, whether you're playing golf or you're just sitting outside. For a guy like Hideki, who is, you know, what's his main skill, right? Approach shots. Good driver of the golf ball. Doesn't, like, murder it like a Bryson or even like a Justin Thomas. He's in the top echelon, um, but not at the absolute peak of driving distance or accuracy, for that matter. But he's incredible with his irons and his, you know, approaches into par fives and all of that sort of thing. And so when you take away the wind element and you soften up the green, that's going to help those who are dialed in either specifically that week or, 
you know, it's their just in general best skill, that's going to help them a ton. And so he comes out and back nine, he's absolutely killing it, right? All the all the shots are within 10 feet. So instead of having to make 15 footers, 20 footers with balls that have rolled away from the pin, he's able to attack these pins. He's good enough to take advantage of it. And then he makes his 10 foot putts for birdie, for eagle. And he all of a sudden in the space of about an hour and a half goes from behind to like four shots up, obviously four shots up over the over, you know, overnight lead. And you go, everybody had an opportunity to take advantage of that, but no guy, nobody out there was more equipped to do it than Hideki, right? He was the, he is the guy if you wanted to, you know, you absolutely needed a 180 yard shot to be within 10 feet. He's the guy or one of the guys that you'd want to do it. Justin Thomas, probably another guy that you'd want to do it, but there's obviously something going on with him this week where he ends up just ejecting himself altogether from the tournament around the same time as Hideki's doing all this other stuff. So Hideki pushes through, he gets that four shot lead, and then he smartly plays it down the stretch on Sunday. Now, of course, things got a little bit hairy uh, around 15, and then, you know, essentially the walk over to 16 would have been a bit of a nerve tightening situation. And, you know, we'll sort of talk about the uh, that whole segment here in a second, but I do want to shout out like, okay, we didn't have Hideki Matsuyama. Feel free to show me the person who did and who was sort of, you know, whatever pounding the table pounding the counter for you know bets on Hideki Matsuyama it just wasn't the case which is why you didn't see the avalanche of people patting themselves on the back for having Hideki Matsuyama to win outright because they just weren't really there who I do want to shout out though Colin Wilson in our preview on Wednesday hopefully you caught that hopefully you took it to heart hopefully you took it to heart more than I did necessarily because Colin Wilson brought Will Zalatoris's name right to the front of the table and We're not going to necessarily win every bet. That's not the point of this podcast. It's to make us better at betting. It's, it's, you know, to make ourselves better at making good decisions. Sometimes I'll come up with some really good stuff. Um, Sometimes, you know, we'll go on a hot streak. Sometimes, you know, my thing is consistency over the course of an NFL season, over the course of a college basketball season, you know, and, 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 just essentially doing things the correct way so that over the course of time, you're going to end up on the plus side or darn near close to it in your recreational betting. So it's not going to be just me, though, that's going to give you winners or guide you in the right way. It's going to be the guests that we have on. And guess who picks those guests? I do. So I'm going to take a little bit of credit for having Colin on and he comes in and he throws down the Will Zalatoris pick and you go, okay, top 20, like I get that. All right, well, you know, maybe a top five, top 10, outside shot, long shot type thing. But when you look at the top of that, of the roster essentially of these players, and, you know, right from the JTs down to, you know, people were all about Brooks Kepka this week just because Brooks Kepka showed up. Like, imagine thinking that Brooks Kepka was going to be a really good option given the fact that he's hobbling around. Now he was pretty good relative to the hobble, but, you know, you could see that that went away pretty quickly come uh, Friday. And his best round, of course, was the first round, which is what we predicted um, going into that tournament. Now, his first round wasn't good by any means, but obviously that deteriorated throughout, you know, the weekend. Of course, he never even made it to Saturday or Sunday. And so Colin comes on and he and he drops a Will Zalatoris, but we look and we go, okay, but like there's 25 guys here up at the top that you could make a case for. Like, how can we pick Zalatoris ahead of all of these other guys? But it's golf 
and you never know. And this guy's striking it, and the only guy who was striking it better than him was probably Hideki. And that's where it comes down to. And if it wasn't for Hideki's string there in that back nine on Saturday after the break, Zalatoris probably wins this tournament. Because you have to ask yourself, as we sort of break this down, as great as Hideki was, if he just shoots one under par instead of six under par on that back nine, even give him a two under par, hell, give him a three under par on that back nine. Now, I understand, obviously, every hole is worth the same. And, you know, if you have a good stretch of nine, that can win you the tournament. But again, the point is, I don't know that that necessarily would have happened without the conditions changing. And so he was the best to adapt to those conditions. You saw guys missing putts incredibly short on Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. To, you know, totally brutal from a professional standpoint. And so, again, what if those three shots go awry and it's a one-shot lead going into Sunday? Maybe it's even a two-shot lead going into Sunday. Well, the round didn't start all that great from Hideki's standpoint. Zalatoris with two birdies to start. Maybe Hideki relinquishes the lead through two holes. And now we've got ourselves a completely different ballgame because the course has to be played differently from Hideki's standpoint you know, without that type of a lead, which brings us to the third place finisher, or at least sort of third in uh, in the mix, which of course was Xander Shoffley. And, you know, a lot of people are, are focused on the 16th, and I am too, believe me. Um, I had a sort of off the grid, uh, off the podcast bet on Xander to be the top American, which if you told me he was going to beat, uh, you know, Spieth, uh, JT, DJ, Brooks, you know, Reed, all of, you know, essentially all of the Americans, um, I would have thought that he would have been just fine. But of course, he loses out to Zalatoris because he triple bogeys the 16th. And, you know, for as much as like that was brutal for him from, you know, we talk about luck and these tournaments. And, you know, listen, Xander wasn't luck or unluckiness that he missed the eagle putt on 13, right? That's a makeable short eagle putt. He hit the shot to give himself, what, six, seven, eight feet for eagle. He misses that putt. He gets a birdie. Everybody's like, okay, well, at least he made birdie. But like, if you're going to come from behind to win a Masters, that eagle putt on 13 is a putt that you have to make. That's a putt that people who win the Masters, they make that putt. Right, whether it's Hideki making it on Saturday. I mean, listen, Shoffley had an eagle on 15 on Saturday as well. But again, that's why these two guys were in contention. And as much as Zalatoris posted that number, you know, it felt like Xander was the only guy who was going to be able to catch Hideki. But then we talk about going to 14 and then 15, right? He makes the birdie on 14, goes to 15, hits it in the bunker. But the bunker shot, three feet to the hole, I thought that bunker shot was in. I thought he was making eagle and we were going to have a one-shot discrepancy after Hideki, you know, jammed his, uh, what was it, like a four iron, something along those lines, uh, over the green and into the back pond. And so, you know, if that goes in, which, you know, is a luck element, like it's obviously an incredibly good shot to be close to the hole, but history is littered with guys who win the tournament who make a shot like that. And that could have gone in for Xander, and it didn't. And yes, he then brings himself to two shots closer. And then, again, from a luck standpoint, he's made a birdie. Hideki has made a bogey. It's now down to two shots. And the bad news is that, you know, because he made that birdie, he now has to go first on the 16th hole. 
which means he doesn't get to see a ball in the air. He doesn't get to see what the wind is going to do. And so he's, you know, they call it, it's, you know, your honor, right? Like, you, you, know, it's, you know, you have honors on this hole. And if you could decline it, like you could decline a penalty in football, he absolutely would have. And so there's sort of a fundamentally strange thing there when it comes to golf, where that's a shot that would be really, really nice to not have to play first in that situation, especially given that Hideki's nerves had to have been ratcheted up a little bit. So Shoffley still knows I'm two back with three to play here. I really got to make a birdie. I got to go right at this hole. Um, you know, as I'm watching it or after it happens, I'm sort of swearing at him going like, how can you miss that? Like the, you know, the aim, the target is pretty big with the funnel pin back to the corner there at 16. And he ends up coming up short because as he said after, he's like, I hit it flush. We just had the wrong wind. You know, I've talked to people about that shot and what to do about the wind and all of that sort of thing, which is an interesting sort of um, insight into what he's thinking going into that. But it ends up in the water. And now Hideki, you know, again, doesn't have to make birdie he doesn't have to make par he just has to make a bogey here because he knows Xander is headed for at least a bogey now it ends up being a triple bogey because things get even worse after that for Xander but the point is is that Hideki can sit on that t-block and just throw it into the middle of the green if it goes down the hill fine if it doesn't it doesn't okay cool and you can three putt make a bogey and because Xander is kicking it away here not have much of an issue going on to the next hole and that of course happens would, you know, again, if things had been different and Hideki had the honor on that 16th hole, who knows? Maybe Hideki ends up in the water because he doesn't know and he hasn't seen what the wind is supposed to be doing or what the wind is actually doing. And so Xander sort of gets screwed from that standpoint. But of course, you take that because it means that you made up a shot on the previous hole or in this case, two shots on the previous hole. So, you know, again, uh, Hideki gets the good fortune of being able to take advantage of the break on late on Saturday, whereas Xander you know, doesn't take advantage of his great shot on 13, um, you know, makes a great play on 14. By the way, that approach on 14, that could have gone in for an eagle, right? That rolls right by the hole. And so if he had any sort of fortune, you know, whether it's eagle there or eagle on the next hole, we're talking about a considerably different tournament. And I'd like to think maybe a different decision um, as far as aggressiveness is concerned for the 16th. Um, other guys in the mix worth sort of talking about Jordan Spieth with the absolute mega tease of all mega teases for people out there again from a, this is a betting podcast you know he's 60 to one two three months ago people bet it because it's Jordan Spieth and we sort of see some glimmer of hope and he may be back and then it gets better and better and he's in contention in a few tournaments and then he wins last week and he's down inside 10 to one and he's in the mix pretty much all through the tournament and then he doesn't win. And so it's just another example of, listen, if you're sitting there with a 70 to one ticket, we talk about it with the NCAA tournament, we talk about the NFL, you have this really great ticket. It's a really, really good bet. 50 to one on Spieth, really, really good bet. You know, 40 to one, good bet. 30 to one, you know, not getting as good, but still pretty good. And then he comes so close where you're sitting there going like, I just, I, it, and there's no real option to sort of hedge it or, you know, win both ways and he doesn't win. And so it's just yet another really good bet. And this time I wasn't involved with it. I'm kind of surprised that I didn't have it, to be honest with you, um, that, you know, he's able to play really well again. It's a good sign for him and for the golf purists and the people who are Jordan Spieth fans out there, that's really good news for them. But again, you're never going to get Jordan Spieth at 60 to 1 to win the Masters ever 
ever again until he is, you know, 46 years old, probably. And so um, incredibly sort of frustrating, I'm sure, for those of you out there who had Jordan Spieth at a really good number. But again, it validates not betting him at 10 to 1, at 12 to 1, at 8 to 1, whatever you like, right? Because it's really hard to win this tournament. And you need a lot of stuff to go your way. And I feel like he does have a lot of stuff go his way this weekend and still doesn't end up winning. Um, John Rahm, my pick uh, at the start of this tournament, if I sort of had, you know, gunpoint, who is your bet? You know, like if there's one guy who you think can win it. And of course he shoots a 66 yesterday, which is even kind of more annoying given the fact that he 72 did across the board, uh, Thursday, Friday and Saturday, even par every single day. And you go a guy like John Rom, you'd think would just get two under par just based on prowess on the par fives, especially at Augusta national, given how gettable those are. And so he ends up, you know, finishing in a top five, which is just an absolute snaky top five, which brings us to uh, Mark Leishman, who I bring up because he ended up sort of being our best chance going into Sunday based on sort of the live plays. And some of the live plays worked out nicely from a odds improvement standpoint. Some of the live plays went the other way and we had a fleet of guys and Leishman was one of them. And you know, it's interesting because as much as he was sort of the closest guy of, you know, we go into the final round, we have four guys at seven under, and Justin Rose, I felt, you know, from basically what I thought was a lucky first round, um, some people reached out to me and sort of get, were asking about head-to-heads, who do you like, Zalatoris or Rose or Harmon or Rose, and I was just like, I don't like Rose at all here, even, you know, after second round, even after through the third round, you know, but especially after the first round, I just thought that was a fluky, fluky round um, that at the time I thought was going to be the low round of the entire tournament and was really annoyed because, you know, we talked about the um, prop bet, the the low scoring round prop bet that you're watching that first round and conditions are really tough and nobody's better than essentially what three or four under and you go, okay we're going to be safe into the next round here now the 65 or better as low round like 65 as low round bet that ends up cashing um but again i had 66 or better as well at plus money which again we talked about on the preview and you know rose shoots a 65 right off the bat now matsyama eventually shot a 65 as well on Saturday. But think about the two things that had to happen for those guys to shoot 65, right? Rose has to come out with one of the most ridiculous back nines really ever when it comes to the fact that he was two over through, what, seven holes, gets an incredibly good bounce, and was able to make eagle on eight to get back to even par, and then was just making everything down the stretch. And you look at him and you go, okay, he was what? plus two the rest of the tournament like it was just incredibly fluky round so he was not you know he was a guy who i just never considered to actually think that he was going to win the tournament i put a little poll out on twitter to see you know if anybody else actually did and you know i again we've seen this enough times that it's worth reminding yourself over and over and over again don't get too caught up in the jackrabbit guy who comes out you know on on thursday going into friday and you know 125 to 1 at rose and like uh, now you had people coming out of the woodwork going like i had this and blah 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 and i'm just sitting there going like that's great but like he's not going to win this like you know we don't get the strokes gained data you know we talked about with colin like you don't get that information from the masters so you really have to look at it from an eye test standpoint and watching him play and seeing how kind of fluky that first round was was enough for me to know 
that he wasn't going to be in there in the end. Now, he's a veteran, he's a good golfer, all that stuff, and so there's enough guile that he was able to get it around to be around minus seven and sort of stay on the broadcast, if you will, for the rest of the tournament, even come Sunday. But that just was never going to be the case for him. Whereas a guy like Leishman comes in, and he's also at minus seven, obviously, with Xander, who we talked about, and Zalatoris, who we talked about. And he, going into that final round, had the longest odds, whether it was with Hideki, you know, the market to win outright, or the market without Hideki, which is a fun market when you have, you know, a four-stroke lead like that or bigger, where sportsbooks will offer up who's going to be the guy other than Hideki who wins, right? Who wins sort of, you know, second place, if you will. And Leishman was the worst odds of that group. And you go, it's a one-round deal. Any of these guys can do it. But when it comes down to a guy like Mark Leishman, who has been in contention in the past and just doesn't close, he just, you know, again, we talk about it when, you know, I think we talked a lot more about it last year. You know, these just another guys, right? These Jags out there. And Mark Leishman is frankly just another guy. And he made a couple of birdies on par fives and obviously had a nice tee shot on 16. He was able to find the slope on, you know, what sort of surprises me that more guys aren't having kick in birdies given how easy it looks sometimes to just sort of shoot into the middle of the green and have it roll down. And again, outside of those birdies, right, he gives a few back on bogeys. He's in the trees a ton of time. And again, maybe if he's got better luck, the ball's bouncing off the trees and into the fairway, and maybe he's a couple strokes better. But you just can't get sucked into a guy like Leishman, knowing that he's just not going to have that close. Now, again, we're betting on him to win, necessarily. We're betting on him to get into the top four. He ends up top five, tied with Rom. And so, you know, he ends up cashing people who had him in the top five. But again, this is just a guy who's just never going to be a threat. And that's what we have to figure out when it comes to the Zalatoruses of the world versus the Shoffleys of the world versus the Leishmans, right? And Leishman can show up once every 10 tournaments and be in the top five or the top 10, never really a threat to win. Whereas Xander, a little bit of breaks, right? He probably ends up winning that tournament. Zalatoris, maybe, you know, the putting's still a little sketchy, right? He didn't really feel all that dangerous when it came to him making a putt. But again, if Hideki doesn't get really fortunate and take advantage of that good fortune, um, you know, maybe we're in a playoff. Maybe Zalatoris wins outright and Colin Wilson's a lot happier when it comes to his bet. A uh, couple other guys, Justin Thomas, like incredibly disappointing. Um, Colin and I both agreed that we thought Justin Thomas was a really good choice to win, obviously from an odd standpoint, right? We have to talk about it from, you know, that framework. 10 to 1. And, you know, the reason we sort of don't want to bet those guys, and I know uh, Colin was that way about Rom, and Rom ends up finishing higher than, than Thomas, which is kind of crazy considering on Friday, you know, or at least early Saturday, Thomas was at one point the favorite to win the tournament. Once, you know, Rose kind of kicked away his early lead and, you know, all of that, those shenanigans ended up happening uh, on Friday and Saturday. And so Thomas ends up, you know, as the favorite, but he was also got up to like an 18 to 1, 20 to 1 early on. Now, obviously, once he kicked that away on Saturday, the odds, you know, went to, you know, hell in a handbasket. Um, but he was still a very viable option to potentially win the tournament at 18 to 1. So you can always, I shouldn't say always, but you can frequently get better numbers. Now, it matters who these guys are who miss the cut. And so that's sort of the final element from the early on the week stuff is when you're looking at these tournament odds before it starts, like you have to understand as crazy as it seems and as unpredictable or unexpected as it sounds or unfathomable as it sounds, 
a ton of these guys are going to miss the cut, even at a relatively easy cut to make at the Masters, where you just kind of have to stay, you know, 10 shot rule or not, you just kind of have to stay within 10 shots of the leader. And Dustin Johnson, not able to do it. Brooks Kepka, Patrick Cantlay, like all of these guys, like it's a laundry list of guys this time around that missed the cut. And, you know, we talk about it for the US Open, the British Open happens all the time, and it's not supposed to happen all that much when it comes to the Masters, but it does. And so, you know, would you rather Justin Thomas at 10 to 1 knowing, or, you know, not knowing who's going to miss the cut, not knowing what Bryson's going to do, not knowing what DJ's going to do, Rory, you know, go on down the line, or would you rather wait and see? Because, like, it's never going to get to the point in the first couple rounds where Justin Thomas, for example, or John Rom, pick your guy, is going to be 3 to 1, you know? you know, he would have to take like a Justin Rose type lead. And the odds of that happening are so incredibly small that it's just not worth doing. And so maybe it turns out that Justin Thomas is in the mix and you see all of the other top guys wilt away, kind of like what was happening on Friday. And he then even still as the favorite is still four to one, which isn't that far off of 10 to one. And if you have that much conviction about it, all that's happened is good for Justin Thomas at that point. All of these guys being out of the mix is good for Justin Thomas, which of course is why he's gone from 10 to 1 to 4 to 1. But that's a decent enough price to pay to see what's happening, to see where these guys have fallen off to, and to see what the competition looks like over the course of the weekend. And when the competition looks like Justin Rose out ahead, you know, fluky round, and a bunch of guys that, you know, haven't won before and are relatively new, like the Zalatoruses of the world, you know, looking back on it, if you'd said 10 under would have been good enough to win, and Justin Thomas is, you know, four or five under on Friday, like four to one looks like a pretty good number at that point. Now you you steer clear of it, or you grabbed it when it was 18 to one, you had a little foresight there, because again, Justin Thomas, for whatever reason, is better in round two than he is in round one. You know, um, to get that good price at 18-1, like you just sort of have to, you know, tip your cap and hopefully he just plays better next time. And I don't know what the hell happened to him on Saturday, but it was really, really disappointing. So of all of these things that happened, you know, even guys missing cuts, you know, the Bryson doing Bryson things out there where he's all over the, all over the yard. The one guy that I think was incredibly disappointing was Justin Thomas, because that was just a complete unnecessarily fall, you know, fall, um, on Saturday. Um, you know, again, especially considering all of those guys that were uh, that that had fallen off before him, um, and Rory. Uh, you know, again, how's he going to end up winning this thing? How do, how does he? How does the luck element? Forget about the play, because the play I think can and will turn around, and he'll you know he's still got a long career ahead of him. But like, is he going to ever get the combination of good play and good breaks at the same time in order to win this thing? Um, I actually thought his second round was more disappointing than his first round. First, you know, people giving him a hard time about the plus four in the first round, but a lot of people were plus four in the first round. But a lot of those people bounced back and played well in better conditions, easier conditions on Friday, and he did not. So he gets ejected. One last thing, talked about it, joked around with about, about it with Ted on the show on Tuesday as we sort of first started talking about the Masters. The final round draw bet system, which if you missed it, is you essentially grab the last handful of groups, um, kind of depending on the odds. And so, you know, you get a three-way market, right? For this guy to win, there to be a draw that day or the other guy to win. And if you just bet all the draws at about plus 800, 
you do it for the last eight groups you'll break even if one of them tie you know in that individual round you'll win money for every other one that ends up being a draw and so uh you know listener of the show egg underscore burger at uh on twitter um he ends up sort of mentioning that he tried he tried it he's like yeah i feel like i'll you know might be fun and he ends up getting one of them to draw and then it comes down to the final putts where Hideki and Xander, and for all of the craziness that happened with the triple bogey on the 16th, um, it gets to a point where, you know, Xander's two shots away, and then he double, and he triple bogeys, but then, you know, Hideki bogeys, and they're back down to their original, um, you know, difference at four strokes apart, which means, of course, that they had played the first 17 holes in the exact same score as sort of crazy and different as they got there, the different roads that they got to do that. And Hideki misses, of course, he's got two putts to win it, and he misses the par putt that would have given them both pars and, of course, given uh, that a draw, which would have been two draws in the last eight rounds, which, of course, would have been an eight-to-one profit overall. So just a killer finish to that. Um, but he reached out and he said to me, he's like, I had a really good time with it because <laughs> it was really fun to follow along with all eight groups to see how many of those guys would end up tying. And it was kind of the perfect conditions for it because there weren't really, like, there wasn't a 75 out there and outside of rom 66 like there wasn't really a low round out there either so everybody sort of clustered at 68 uh through like 73 or 74 and you go okay well that's you know six shots you know tight essentially and so if you know golfer a shoots a 69 you know you're sort of five to one six to one for golfer b to shoot the exact same number given the sort of tighter um you know uh spread if you will of who, you know, of what could possibly be scored. And so um, it's just funny that it comes down to that last putt. I didn't I didn't play it because I had enough different things going on to sort of sweat on the final day. Um, but kind of fun that somebody else tried it. At least they didn't lose any money. And of course came within one putt of uh, of actually winning eight to one on that. That would have been cool. As far as our betting is concerned, um, the top 20s were hit and miss. The sort of 50-50, you know, low risk ones went really bad, which is again going to happen when that many high profile guys miss the cut. Um, but we make it up. Of course, Finau, obvious top 20, of course. Um, he gets in there. And so that ends up being um, sort of a saving grace from that section. But we end up hitting three to one on Brian Harmon, who again was lead adjacent throughout much of the tournament and for somebody who was always kind of between minus four and minus two um, throughout the entire tournament he was literally almost never seen uh, when it comes to the broadcast but at plus 300 he cashes at top 20 and then our boy big bob mcintyre robert mcintyre the greatest left-hander in the history of scottish golf maybe um he cashes top 20 at plus 400 which was nice um especially considering he finishes 12th as a debutante and doesn't win top debutante <laughs> because of course and this is you know, sort of ironic that colin and i would be talking about this um in that like colin obviously likes zalatoris rightly so um didn't want to bet him in the debutante market because he was at even 
you know, uh, an even price and couldn't bet on McIntyre because, again, he felt so strongly about Zalatoris. And so we end up cashing with McIntyre 4-1 to one in the top 20, so that's okay that we lost out the top deb, but at least we were sort of correct in the handicap of McIntyre having a really good tournament. Again, two left-handed guys, which, again, if you're a lefty, doesn't mean you're going to win the tournament, doesn't mean you don't have to play well, it just means that you're going to have every advantage when it comes to the vast majority of the course, especially when it comes to some of the more scorable holes. Um, Victor Hovland, disappointing. Um, Mickelson, also 21st for both of those guys. So if you had those, either of those guys for different reasons in the top 20, you know, Victor Hovland, a guy who was, you know, listen, he was, I would say, uh, contention adjacent um, throughout much of the tournament. Fell off late and then just has a bad enough round yesterday to fall to 21st. Kind of nice for those of you who are betting in the, in the websites that chop your top 20s, your top 10s, uh, in having a top 20 that didn't need to get chopped as it was a clean break between 20th and 21st. Those of you who have been sort of frustrated by the chop before will know what I'm talking about there. Um, Mickelson, look, you know, I was talking to a friend on, on Wednesday, late Wednesday night, and we're going over some of the odds and the numbers, and he's like, Mickelson plus 450, man, that seems like a really good number for him to just make the top 20. And he gets himself into the top 20, and then bogeys the last hole to fall to 21st. We didn't end up betting it, but for anybody who had that sort of line of thinking, which I think would have been a relatively common line of thinking, that had to be an absolute killer when it comes to that bet. And then shout out to Jose Maria Olathabal, who gets, and there should be some sort of crown, you know, the way they give out low amateur after after the tournament there should be like a low old guy and it's you know somebody other than you know above 55 or something like that or who hasn't contended in a really long time you know we were hoping it was going to be Mike Weir I realize he's only 50 same age as Mickelson but we expect more at this stage from Mickelson than we do Weir um, because he had made the cut uh, back in November but it turns out Jose Maria Olathabal the random made cut sometimes it's Bernard Longer sometimes it's Fred Couples Fred Couples was dining out for a long time on that sort of concept uh, but this time around it's Jose Maria Olathabal I bet you zero dollars were bet on Jose Maria Olathabal to make the cut uh, at the Masters. So all in all, um, not the most fun Masters that we've ever had in our lives. We had about 30 seconds worth of intrigue as they walked over to the tee on 16. We had our sort of disappointed guy moment in uh, Shoffley in that moment, and we had the up-and-comer, right? You always have your, have your guy who, you know, gets on the radar for a lot of people and sort of catches everybody by surprise, and that was Zalatoris, so cool to have that guy mentioned uh, when it comes to the podcast. And then I think, you know, a very worthy champion when it comes to sort of building a career and getting to a point where, you know, again, a lot of times, whether it was runner-up to JT or some of these final pairings that he's had going into final rounds for different majors. You know, Hideki, a guy that a lot of people were like, yeah, he's going to end up winning one of these one day, whether it was a Masters or something else. Um, You know, PGA seemed like a pretty decent fit for him too. Um, You know, nice to have him win one. Uh, I don't know that he'll get a second one necessarily, um, but a guy who who is well-deserved when it comes to that. So um, all in all, we've certainly had worse Masters. I would make the case that the one in November was worse. But again, another situation where we were just just happy to have it back. And that being said, really looking forward to Kiowa uh, in, what, six weeks' time, essentially, for the PGA Championship, then, of course, the U.S. Open, and the return of the British Open as well, right? A tournament that might
might be, I guess, the last thing that we haven't had since, if you know what I mean. As they say in hockey, let's do that hockey. Thank you very much, Laszlo. Yeah, let's do a little let's do that hockey here, a little recap over the course of the weekend. You'll recall, didn't uh, didn't have a podcast, of course, on Friday, part of that, because the Central and North Divisions were both dark uh, that night. And so we got to talk a little bit about Saturday, and it started off with a little matinee action. Dallas ends up winning comfortably. Huh. Almost impossible to believe, uh, following up a victory against the Blackhawks that was also comfortable on Thursday. So two straight comfortable wins for the Stars, and you knew that had to come to an end as they then travel on Sunday to face Nashville, and they, of course, go to <laughs> right back to where they normally do, right? They go to overtime, go to a shootout, and lose in the shootout to the Predators. Fortunately, stayed away from them in that one, so we were able to gather a couple of units there just on the Stars alone over the course of Thursday and Saturday. Saturday. Uh, elsewhere on Saturday, I uh, tweeted it out. Shout out to anybody who made the correct bet when it came to the Red Wings uh, against the Carolina Hurricanes. Huge, huge number on Detroit. And it's worth sort of mentioning, okay, trade deadline time, right? And if the team's not very good and they trade a couple of players, what are we really missing out on? Right? We talk about this in other sports as well when guys are missing. It's like, do we think that much of these players, especially relative to the team, that like they're really going to make all that much of a difference? Now, a couple of guys out with injury, right? Bobby Ryan doesn't look like he's not coming back um, you know, at any point this season, so he comes off the trade market, if you will. And so the Red Wings go and, you know, again, you you place that bet plus three hundred or better there for Detroit. Again, I wasn't able to muster it, but again, lesson learned from that standpoint to a degree. Not that I'm backing Detroit tonight necessarily, um, but you know, you make that bet. Detroit takes the lead. Carolina scores to tie it. The game, you know, they uh, what they score it again to take the lead. The goal gets disallowed. Then we end up in extra time, and now you're dealing with three on three overtime. And you're like, this of course is where plus three hundred dogs go to die. Goes to a shootout. Detroit scores first. You're thinking, okay, we really got this. Now we just got to make a couple of saves here. Carolina ties the shootout. The shootout ends up going what seven or eight rounds at that point before Detroit finally ends up winning. So you know you. You earned your three units if you went that route with Detroit, which you should have because that was the right play at that price, um, you know, despite who was not in the lineup for Detroit. But again, who could not be in the lineup that you would care all that much about when it comes to a team that, again, is not particularly good, but we bet on numbers and not teams here. Um one other event from Saturday in the Central, Tampa Bay and Nashville. Tampa Bay shuts out Nashville, and this would have been a really good case to be made for Nashville in the game on Sunday, but Nashville was 14-5 to in high-danger chances at even strength against Tampa Bay, and so the puck you know, didn't go in for them. It goes in for Tampa Bay, and Tampa Bay wins that game, but obviously, you know, we had talked about last week, like Tampa Bay is playing, excuse me, Nashville is playing really, really good hockey at this point. They are getting a little bit lucky from a conversion offensively standpoint and unlucky uh, or lucky from a, you know, opponent's conversion standpoint. And now they get unlucky in this game. And so maybe that sort of comes back to haunt them a little bit from a, like, again, statistical mathematical correction 
standpoint. So um, kind of a drag if you were on Nashville there because you were probably on the right side and kind of never really had a chance to win that game given that you got shut out. Uh, Chicago beats Columbus. Nothing to really sort of write home about there. Two teams that are bet off teams for us, right? Bet on teams are teams that obviously we want to bet on and bet off teams are teams that we want to avoid or fade if given the opportunity. And so Chicago and Columbus, I have rated as the two worst teams for even strength. Uh, in the Central Division, Detroit sort of creeping their way down there, creeping their way down there. Um, but of course, Detroit doesn't get the same regard that Chicago and Columbus do at this point in time. As for the uh, the North Division, excuse me, again, Dallas wins. Uh, they are the, you know, the Central's... Um, uh, you know, analytical darling, right? Metric darling, because their numbers from metric standpoint, uh, at even strength particularly, look so much better than their record, right? Well, their cousins to the north are the Montreal Canadiens. The metrics look way better than the actual play, which means if Dallas wins, that means we can't possibly get both of the metric darlings to win a hockey game. Montreal, kind of a no-show, to be completely honest with you. Um, Frankly, they actually played from a metric standpoint worse than they did when they were coming off of that rest situation that we talked about last week after playing, you know, Wednesday night in Toronto and then coming home to play the Jets. The numbers are actually pretty much dead on when it comes to the Jets' output in both games and Montreal's offensive output, which was much worse uh, on Saturday night. And so they end up losing quite convincingly to the Jets there. So again, things have not been uh, cleaned up when it comes to the Jets. Uh, the nightcap in the north, um, Calgary and Edmonton. Interesting element here. No play for me. My numbers are right on, and this is probably more a surprise you know, to you that the num my numbers would be right on because I think a lot of people saw that game and were like, Calgary's given up. They phoned it in. Edmonton, you know, like whatever. They're in a playoff team. They're one of the better teams and all that sort of thing, right? And so the numbers minus 115, minus 105. My numbers made it a straight pick them, so it would have been minus 110 on either side. So really not that much in the way of value there. You could sort of make a case, I suppose, for Calgary if you absolutely had to bet it. But Calgary ends up goes win and wins 5 nothing. And Connor McDavid talks about afterwards, and this is sort of when you need to know all of what's going on when it comes to hockey to be able to take advantage of this one. He talks about having to go to the, um, you know, I guess it's not going to the the funeral or the memoriam, if you will, of their former teammate. But he's like, you know, how are we supposed to go and you know do that and mourn? And the NHL schedules this game. And it wasn't a game that was scheduled before the season started. It was a game that was scheduled because of the Canucks being absent from the league, essentially, for the you know <laughs> couple of weeks here due to COVID. And they throw this game together, not sort of factoring in that, you know, kind of a big deal for the Oilers organization. Um, you know, to have to deal with that emotionally during the day and then go to Calgary and play that game, you know, they just sort of, and maybe they're making excuses after the fact, who knows? But point is, is they kind of no-show it when it comes to that game. And, you know, given the circumstances, you're not all that surprised and something that, you know, could have been predictable. But again, you have to know kind of the ins and outs of what's going on. That's going to be something that, you know, isn't going to be factored into any sort of a spreadsheet. And so as much as we kind of try to track rest and COVID returns and all of these outside of things, it's kind of really off the board stuff like a former teammate's memorial the, the same day that, you know, again, looking back, you don't 
you, if you're an Oilers fan, you're certainly giving the team the sort of benefit of the doubt when it comes to that game. Uh, as for Monday, uh, Detroit and Carolina are back at it. You're looking at it again. You're going, wow, plus 300. Holy cow, like we're back to it. I mean, again, this is no different than Columbus against Tampa Bay last week where it was like, okay, we got what we wanted out of Columbus in the first game. We're going to steer clear of this second game. And maybe it's an evenly played game that could go either way, in, in which case we got the underdog money, you know, the underdog price that we're in a pretty good spot and all of that stuff. i just rather stay away. I'm just going to steer clear of it in this situation because, again, we got, you know, again, if you were on Detroit, you got what you needed out of this two-game series, and it's just not worth getting back into it. Um, so we'll steer clear from that. I don't have anything from a Chicago-Columbus standpoint. I would say purely on, you know, there, you go with the revenge angle, which, of course, has been a pretty decent angle this season um you know chicago and columbus that game was relatively close from a metric standpoint on saturday chicago wins the games 2-2 you know through the second period through much of that game and so you know again if i had to lean one way or another i would lean to columbus but at this point unless i'm getting some significant value on columbus um it's just not a play that I'm really that excited to make. They were 12 to 7 in high danger chances and a 2.24 to 1.48 expected goals against Chicago. So is that a simply you blew it situation? Quick reminder on that is if you have good metrics in one game and you don't win and then there's a rematch and you'd think to yourself just reading these metrics, you'd go, "Wow, I really like Columbus in this game, especially at home." You know, maybe that's a play. Well, no, Columbus may have just blown it. But let's do that hockey model has Columbus 10% below average. It has Chicago 11.5% below average at even strength. And so Columbus at home, so give them a little bump for that. Obviously, you know, Columbus, part of their numbers or a lot of their numbers are built on having, you know, the uh, Felinos of the world, right? The guys that they have traded away. You know, those guys are in the mix in those numbers. And now those guys are gone. Are those guys enough? you know, difference makers, if you will, to sort of change the complexion of this game from a mathematical standpoint. I don't really think so. Um, so, you know, because of that, right, slightly better team at home, I've got the true money line for this at minus 116, plus 116. So Columbus, 53.6% chance that they win this game. You're getting Columbus at plus 105 right now so there is a tiny margin there but it is not nearly enough for me to get behind that um i you know i do have you know it is a team that's favored that is getting a slightly underdog price so again if you're you know needed to bet one way i think columbus is the play there especially given the metrics from saturday hopefully that doesn't cause um you know a you blew it situation as for the north division uh we're back here with more Whew, more Montreal, Toronto um, seems to go poorly every single time, but you already know where I'm going to go with it when it comes from a metric standpoint. Again, Toronto getting better and better and better. 21 high danger chances against Ottawa kind of skipped past that game just because, I mean, there wasn't really a ton to talk about. Ottawa was the, you know, value side going into the game you know what we do when it comes to ottawa we give it 10 minutes see if they give up a goal guess what they did we stay away blah 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 blah. you know same story with ottawa every single time um which is going to come into into play here in a second in this next game so montreal and toronto uh, again toronto getting better and better and better they're up to 12.6 percent above league average montreal at 13 percent above league average so again montreal slightly better 
slightly better at even strength from a metric standpoint. You could get into the, well, they're not, you know, they're without Brendan Gallagher, all of that sort of thing. But again, we're getting a plus 115 price with the home standing Montreal Canadiens. Again, a team, by the way, who did not play very well on Saturday. And when it comes to hockey, sort of buying back off of a team that played a real stinker over the course of their last game uh, is usually a profitable system over the long haul here, especially when they're still undervalued relative to their opponent in this case, that being the Leafs. And then Ottawa-Winnipeg. Again, just like I alluded to before, we're at a plus 167 number here, kind of the best that I've seen. We're going to wait 10 minutes, see if they give up a goal. If it's still 0-0, now we can get in on it at plus 150 or better because we've dodged that early lapse that Ottawa frequently has. I'd like to think they're going to have tightened things up after giving up 21 high-danger chances earlier uh, in the week, or I should say over the weekend. Uh, so that's certainly going to be a wait-and-see type of a play there. So again, Columbus is the only play that I would make in the Central Division, and Montreal is the only play that I would make here in the North Division tonight before we get into the live market situation for the Senators. As for tomorrow, things thinning out a little bit. You know, Hopefully we'll have Ted available to talk to him with Tuesdays with Ted. Um, again, a lot more NHL here as we get down the stretch here with a few more weeks to go left in the regular season at some point we do have to do a little nfl talk anybody interested in the nfl by any chance uh with the nfl draft coming around the corner here in less than two weeks time um and what happens first the nba playoffs actually start the canucks finish their season or the pga championship i don't know but that's what we've got to look for in our future uh along with you know a little kentucky derby as well in the first saturday of may which i think is like may 1st this year so that's coming around closer than we think so back again tomorrow to do all that as per usual don't forget to subscribe rate review and share the podcast and in a review if you don't mind throw something in about the guests because the guests come on here and they kill it as well i'm at mrus authentic on twitter until tomorrow i'll see you at the window